Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. In this episode, I'm speaking with Randy Braun, author of Something Major, the new playbook for women at work, and the CEO and founder of the women's leadership firm, Something Major. Randy touches on the importance of boundaries, the loss aversion mindset, and how the change you're looking for within yourself can be the spark to others as well. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Good morning. It's really a pleasure to be here and really special to spend time with companies who really walk the walk on this issue. So thank you for all the work you do with Women on the Move. It's our pleasure. So tell us why you wanted to write this book. Just lay out what motivated you to do it and why now. Absolutely. So before I ever started writing this book, I was on the phone with a woman one morning and she just starts to confess into the phone. She goes, I just have no desire. In fact, I can't even remember the last time I was in the mood. That now kind of felt meh after years of doing all the right things, checking all the boxes, ascending to the highest levels of leadership. Like She even went to Harvard. She couldn't have done anything else, quote unquote, right. I think that in the conversation that we have around burnout and around thriving, we're seeing women in senior levels of leadership face this kind of low work libido situation. So that for me was the light bulb where I was like, okay, we need to start talking to women about how they can play the game on their own rules and win because there's just no little blue pill for that. So instead, I hope that we have a new playbook. Yes, I love that. So we're going to go into very specific topics in a minute, but I would love to ask you, what were sort of the one or two big surprises or takeaways or just themes that really emerged for you in thinking about this? The more I started talking to people during the writing process, the more a few things really stuck out for me. So what I found was that the more women, and I was experiencing this in my coaching practice, the more I started sharing these different experiences that were coming up in my coaching practice around rethinking from being productive to impactful the secrets around boundaries and burnout, the more I found women at the highest levels of leadership were dying to talk about these things with each other. I think a lot of us sometimes almost carry a little shame with us. I know I'm objectively so successful on the outside, but why do these things still feel like a struggle on the Mm, inside? And I should feel better. I just want to normalize that it's okay to be successful and stressed out. I want to normalize that it's okay to feel overwhelmed and grateful for the career that you've built. And I think we need to have a more nuanced, open conversation where those things have permission to coexist. Yeah. I think it's interesting to think about here, women who've worked for quite a long time and longevity of staying in the career of maintaining interest and energy is really important, I think, to everyone here, or certainly will be to younger women. How do you think about that longevity in your career and what some of these tips are designed to do? Longevity is one of the things that I'm perhaps the most passionate about. And if I could just tell a quick story, about two years ago, I received a phone call from a woman who had gotten my name and she called me. She was at the time in her late forties and she called me to confess, I'm at this job that should be the apex of my career. I have this great family, but I just feel like I'm struggling to get through every single day. I want to do some executive coaching. So we talked and she called me back a few days later. She said, you know what? Great conversation, but I don't have time for coaching. She called me back a year later to say, I quit my job. I couldn't do it anymore. And I'm taking a sabbatical and I want to talk to you again. And this is what concerns me, Sam, is that we're seeing women who are leaving the workforce at senior levels of leadership when they have maybe five, 10, maybe even 20 great years of career ahead of them because they can't do it anymore. So if you want to leave, not you necessarily, but if one wants to leave because it's your goal to retire early, I celebrate you for being a choice. But if you feel like you need to leave because you can't sustain, then something is wrong. And we need to create a space where women can not just lead and thrive, but have that longevity for years to come. 
Well, let's start with one reason I think a lot of people feel burnt out, which is perfectionism. Tell us about what your findings were. And in particular, I love this concept of loss aversion, that we really try to minimize losses at the expense of maybe gaining other things. So how do we work with that? And how do we maybe overcome that? Absolutely. So when I walk into a room like this of high-performing senior women leaders, one thing that I hear a lot, if I was to talk to you individually, would be some version of this story. You know, I'm really hard on myself, but it's what makes me so successful. Our high standards are great. They push us forward. Being thoughtful about the work that we're putting out and how we manage our relationships and stakeholders, very important. But what I sometimes observe with high-performing women, it's something we discuss in the book, is that sometimes that thought process creates a phenomenon called loss aversion, where we start to move through our careers and proceed through our decisions, where we are minimizing our failure instead of maximizing our success. And that's when self-doubt moves from being something that is a healthy catalyst for evaluating a situation and making smart choices to being something that really hampers our ability to be creative, share an innovative idea, or just not feel so burnt out. So many of us are just hemorrhaging energy all the time, overworking, overthinking, because we're stuck in this loss aversion mindset and we're not giving ourselves permission to have room to create and maybe fail and maybe be imperfect. And that's why perfectionism stands so addictive. Because when we hold ourselves to that standard and we inevitably don't meet the perfectionistic standard, we just double down on being more perfect the next time. And it's just a really vicious cycle if we can't break it. You mentioned the story of Babe Ruth in the book, which is Babe Ruth had the highest home run average, but also had the highest strikeout average, which is so interesting to keep in perspective. You have to swing all the time. If you're going to make all the successes, you have to have the failures too. I don't think we often see that. We only see what works, not what didn't work. 100%. I didn't even know that about Babe Ruth until I started writing my book. One of the things I got curious about in this chapter that it appears in on quieting our inner critics, I was thinking to myself, so many of the women that I talk to, again, even at these high levels of leadership are going through life, trying to avoid striking out, not hitting home runs. So I was like, who is the guy who was Babe Ruth's peer who had the record for least amount of strikeouts? And I looked him up. His name was like Joe Stuhl. I had honestly never heard of him. And that's his legacy and no one even remembers him. But when I was doing the research and I learned that Babe Ruth also at one point held the record for most strikeouts, I was like, wow, that's really something that we can all learn from because if we are going to swing big, and and I don't mean to sound trite, but if we are going to swing big, we have to give ourselves permission to miss a few along the way. No, thank you for that. Let's talk about imposter syndrome. So this is something that we hear about all the time. There's a lot of popular press about this now. I personally don't love the term. Maybe I just don't love why it makes women feel this way, but tell us about why you don't also like this term and what we might be able to do about this, just the feelings we might have without really calling it that or going. Yeah. If you take nothing away from our conversation today, I want to ask you one favor. Please never use the term imposter syndrome again. If you can't tell, I feel very strongly about this. (laughs) Okay, so there's been a lot of great research on this from academics. And essentially, here is why I hate the term imposter syndrome. When we talk about imposter syndrome, we basically say that something is wrong with us. Syndrome also conjures up these ideas of Victorian hysteria, like all sorts of bad, bad, bad female stereotypes. There is nothing wrong with any of us. We all go to work in a world that was not designed for our success. That's not a JP Morgan thing. That is a living in 2023 thing. 
And I want us to understand that it is normal to have self-doubt. Every single one of us has an inner critic. It's that voice of self-doubt or self-judgment. It doesn't make you deficient. It makes you human. Here's where we run into trouble. Our inner critic can be an incredibly helpful problem identifier because all our inner critic cares about is keeping us safe from a few key things. I call them the Long Island iced tea of fear, right? Failure, risk, humiliation, vulnerability. And listen, Long Island iced teas personally aren't for me, but here's the thing. You can sip, but we don't want you chugging that Long Island iced tea of fear, right? If you take nothing else from this conversation, don't show up drunk on your Long Island iced tea of fear. Instead, what I want us to understand is that the inner critic is healthy in evaluating that there might be some risk or some exposure. And it's also really important to not let that voice of self-doubt start to dictate all of your decisions and going unchecked. Mm, okay. Someone from Long Island, by the way, I have had my share of ice tea. <laughs> Terrible. Horrible. So I'm not going to go there with imposter syndrome. And how do you see this show up today in women and how, when you coach them, are you able to help them work through that, both the inner critic and living with that inner critic? Yeah. I tell one of the stories that I tell in my book was a woman partner at a law firm. She was not just the first black woman to ever be a partner in her practice group in this global firm. She was the first black person. And so she felt like she was carrying a lot of weight on her shoulders and had a lot of self-doubt about what her leadership role was going to look like inside the firm. So she gets a call and they say, hey, we want you at the annual partner meeting to run the entire presentation for our practice group. That is a tremendous stage. And her inner critic was so loud, right? And I tell this story in depth in the book, just saying, you're not going to be able to do this. You're going to embarrass yourself. People are going to know that you don't deserve to be here. And she spent days and days before the presentation, just paralyzed in the self-doubt. She could not even get going on the slide deck. And in coaching through, we did a lot of coaching before her presentation. What she discovered was that the inner critic was just warning her that this was a big stage, that there was some vulnerability, but it wasn't helping her move forward. And so what we were able to do was coach through, okay, what is it that you are scared of? Let's work through that. And then what is it that you really want to bring to this presentation that is meaningful to you? So she shook up the format. She did a big focus on diversity, equity, inclusion in her practice group. And from the second, this was in COVID times, from the second that she clicked off on Zoom, her phone was practically vibrating off its desk. People were calling her from all over the country to say it was the best presentation they had ever had because it felt human. It felt authentic. And so in giving herself permission to be herself and move past that kind of inner critic paralysis, she was able to really bring her full self to work and kill it in the presentation. Yeah. Well, that's super. One of the things that I think sometimes prompts that inner critic is feedback. We're a very big feedback culture Mm -hmm. here. Feedback, feedback, feedback. We love it. We have to give it and we have to hear it. Yes. But you talk about feedback, I think in a really interesting way, and it made me pause that feedback, it's a great reminder, is one person's perspective of you or maybe multiple, but it's a subjective perspective. 100%. But it is hard to take negative feedback. You might be told 10 things. So I like to start out with reviews. Here are the great things you Uh did. And here's opportunities. But everyone only hears the things you have to work on, never the early part. Why is that? Why is it so hard to deal with negative feedback? And how should we deal with it better? Yeah. So if you've ever felt like negative feedback is stickier in your brain than positive feedback, you are not imagining it. Research in the field of psychology shows that, and this is important, Sam, it is especially true for high performers, the research shows that negative feedback is six times stickier, essentially, in our minds than positive feedback. So literally, for every single piece of negative feedback you get, research shows you need to hear six positive things. Okay, I got to change my list. So here's the thing about feedback. 
I think feedback's incredibly important. I think every woman in this room would probably agree your success has been influenced by a mentor or a sponsor or a peer or someone important in your life who has given you positive and hopefully constructive feedback along the way. But we also need to greet feedback with nuance and perspective. So a few truths that I want you to understand about feedback. Number one, feedback tells us a lot more about the feedback givers, preferences, priorities, perspectives, values, biases. Doesn't mean that we should write it off, but we should know that feedback tells us a lot about the feedback giver. Number two, feedback is subjective. It is about a specific moment in time between you, a situation, and your feedback giver. And then thirdly, it's not an immutable truth, it's a data point. And I think sometimes as high-performing women, and I see this even at the highest levels of leadership, we hold on to one piece of negative feedback and we start to let it get existential. I imagine that in your businesses, you would never make a critical decision based on a single data point. You would look at a trend line. And so when it comes to thinking about and processing feedback, I want to encourage you to think about what is the trend line and what are those data points that are outliers? It doesn't mean we can't learn from an outlier, right? If you're looking at something, an outlier is a very important thing to analyze. But I want us to make decisions, Sam, based on the trend lines. So what is the type of feedback you tend to hear that women have in your coaching practice? What do they come to you with? Do you see typical themes? And how do you get them to live with that feedback and be okay with it? I've coached women who work in every single industry imaginable. I mean, just a few kind of things that I think really stick out for people is when people comment on their communication style, when people communicate on their outputs. For example, I was working with a woman who works at a big global consulting firm. She's on a huge project in the Middle East. She gave this huge presentation to the client and the client started interrogating something on a particular graph. And she was like, oh my God, this graph has so much research and so much data. In the meeting, she handled it, but she's not really defensive about it. And I was like, this is not a referendum on your ability as the partner (laughs) to manage the conversation. This is really about an opportunity to get curious about where your stakeholders aren't communicating. Yeah. So thinking about where it's coming from and understanding the whole context. Yeah. And can I also say, like, sometimes we get feedback that's just not fair. We get feedback based on our appearance. There is more pressure on how we communicate. Studies show that the way that women communicate in setting a boundary or explaining our perspective on something does not always get received as well as if our male colleague was making the same comment. There can be pushback sometimes when we stand up for ourselves on things. I think it's important that we learn how to own our message with authenticity. You know, I think a lot of us might have been told things like, You don't have executive presence. Mm. Your relationships aren't as good. Some very typically female things, I think, to hear that men typically don't get. And so I think it's a great reminder that when you hear those things, really understand where they're coming from and maybe ask your boss or whomever's giving it to you, who else has this or how can I learn from this? Almost challenge, why is this coming to you? Is that typical for other colleagues you have? But also as you give feedback to other people, understand what you're giving to and is it equal, equally done? Is it men and women are getting the same kinds of things? And one thing I would say to that too, and it's something I talk about in multiple chapters in the book, whether it's setting our boundaries or owning our message, is that it's so important to think about how we co-design and collaborate with our stakeholders. And I find that one of the things that we underutilize in those conversations is simple question asking. Can you help me understand? Can you be more specific? Have you considered XYZ? Questions inherently create that collaborative conversation, I find. 
So there's a concept that you talk about called identity foreclosure. Hadn't really heard about this before. So let me me make sure I get this right. A premature commitment to an identity, meaning we think we know who we are before we've actually explored who we are, which is so interesting from a career perspective. You think maybe you are one type of person, you have one type of skill set, and you could never be the other thing. Or it's too late to do that. I can't change at this point. Talk about that concept. Why do we believe that? And I'm hoping you're going to debunk it because it's really wrong. Absolutely. So, and I talk about this a lot in my chapter about rebounding when the plan blows up, Mm -hmm. because obviously at some point we're going to make lots of plans for our life and our career. And at some point those plans are going to blow up in ways big or small because we are human. And one of the things that I found over and over again in my coaching was that when things like that happened, too many of the high-performing women that I know started to treat it as an identity crisis. Mm when actually it was just an opportunity to get curious about your identity. When we think about identity foreclosure, it's this idea that we have essentially foreclosed on who we are before we're open to anything else. And so I encourage you to think about in moments where your self-doubt or a failure or the plan blowing up has you questioning, oh my God, who am I? Is this for me? What am I going to do? To get curious about what it looks like in your life to have permission to fail, what it looks like in your life to reimagine your values and your priorities. Imagine this, when we graduate from college, we're told this is the moment, figure out who you are, figure out what you want to do. And you get that permission to experiment. If we're moving through our careers in a thoughtful way, I think we should be asking ourselves those questions on a regular basis. Our work world is changing extremely rapidly. We are showing up to work and living and leading through a time that people are going to study for a really long time. And so if there was ever a moment to get curious about how you want to lead, what you want the priorities in your life to look like, how you want your team to run or your relationship to look like to people or things, I really think now is the time to get curious and experiment. We don't give ourselves permission to experiment. We think, oh, we have to have a perfect plan and then execute the perfect plan. That standard is too high. This day and age, there's so much change going on out there. Technology is changing so much. I didn't come out of school with a technology background, and Mm -hmm. I feel like I better learn and do things differently if I want to keep up and really even be in this industry. So how can people do that? Do you advise the constant learning? And is there an example of someone who really made a big pivot because they had that permission to do that for themselves? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the stories that I tell in my book is about this woman named Kat Norton. You might have heard about her story. She's also known as Miss Excel. Kat's really interesting. She was working in consulting before the pandemic. And one of the things that she did was she just on the side did these Excel training classes for people in her company. The world shuts down, her travel shuts down. So she starts putting up these Instagram videos about things she's passionate about on Excel and ends up going viral. And her Miss Excel business becomes so big that now she's making seven figures a year. From being an Excel trainer. Yes. An expert. From being my most compelling person on TikTok (laughs) and Excel. So here's the thing. Is anyone in this room going to go viral as a TikTok personality? Probably not. It's an extreme example. But what Kat did along the way was she was just curious about and excited about Excel. So she just put out videos, talked to people about it. One of the things I do talk about in my book is that I think sometimes we feel like we need to make a 100% performance leap in a single area performance. And I love the idea of looking at 1% choices and 1% experiments. Let the stakes be low to experiment. And the last thing I would say, Sam, is our goals are contact sports. So if there's something you're curious about, if there's something you want to pursue, don't hold that in until you feel like you have the perfect plan or the perfect articulation about it. There is someone out there who has the introduction, the answer, or the questions that's going to unearth the answers for you. 
What does a 1% change look like? Give me an example of that. I had a client who, it was shortly after the murder of George Floyd. She worked in social justice. She had three kids in three different teleschools. And she might have actually been the busiest person I knew at that phase of the pandemic. And she was a part of this group coaching cohort I was leading. And we were talking about goals one night. I just asked her, I was like, what do you want? What would you do if you could? She goes, I used to be a runner. And if I could, I would just run because I've never been so stressed out in my life. I just don't have time. So I asked her, Sam, I said, what's the smallest thing you can say yes to, to make that a priority? She said, tomorrow, I'm going to set my alarm clock just a little bit early and I'll at least get 10 minutes of running in. And I said, okay, well, what's the smallest thing you're going to have to say no to, to protect that? Yes. I'm going to have to not hit the snooze button. So I asked her, I'm like, how is that going to happen? She goes, my partner's going to push me out of bed. So she goes, she does her run. We come back to the next session of the cohort. We celebrate her. And to be completely honest, I don't really think about this again until holiday comes around. And we send out these champagne bottles at something major every year at holiday. And I always tell people, put this in your fridge and pop it when something major happens in your life this year. So she sends me an email back and she goes, I just want to let you know, I just finished my first marathon. Wow. This is a true story started with a 10 minute run and we underestimate the power of small, what I call saying yes commitments and small saying no commitments and the accountability that we need to support those. I love that. That seems very doable. I will never run a marathon. (laughs) The 10 minute part seems very doable. The 10 minute part. Yeah. But I think everyone is able to run a marathon, whatever running a marathon is working up to that goal. Exactly. So let's talk about productivity and what productivity looks like versus being impactful. We started out talking about our goals are really outcome driven. What's the impact that we're trying to get? So I hope we don't confuse being productive and busy work with true outcomes. But how do you look at that too? Is productive a word that you like? And how do you think about actually seeing outcomes that are meaningful? Yeah, I hate the word productivity. Imposter syndrome, productivity. Yeah. We're not used <laughs> I have a list in the book of 16 things I forbid you to say at work. And I think now that I'm thinking about it, we have to make that list longer. I love it. I'm not anti-productivity. I'm anti the way we think about productivity. And we've gotten productivity confused with impact. And one of the things I've observed with senior level women is that there are a few core reasons I find really high-performing successful women actually hide out inside of our productivity. So we burrow into productivity. We burrow into busyness in our to-do list for a few core reasons. Number one, we're overwhelmed by how busy we are. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but research from Dr. Ashley Willens at Harvard Business School shows that when we feel what she calls time poor, one of the quickest things where we pivot to is putting small things on our to-do list that we can check off to create a false sense of control. It doesn't fix the root issue. It actually makes it worse. Number two, I find that we hide out inside productivity because we're actually just really handcuffed by our perfectionism. Mm. And when we're productive and busy, busy, busy all the time, it's a distraction from the fear we have of being imperfect. And then number three, the reason I see that we hide out inside productivity is because we're not actually sure what we want. We're starting to ask ourselves those existential questions about what is the legacy of my career going to be? What do I want my impact to be? What do I want the balance in my life to be? And those questions are so scary, so overwhelming. It's like, well, I don't have time to think about that. So let me just get into the to-do list and get what I need done. You get back to things that make you feel good, that hit. Exactly. And I just want us to focus on being impactful, right? And thinking about not necessarily how we do it all, but how we do it well. I think sometimes we forget those are different things. Yeah. It makes me think about how I think so many of our calendars are just jam-packed every day. You know, how many of you have time on your calendars that you've blocked for thinking and actually doing things? We're very much of a player-coach culture mm-hmm. where we get into the weeds with our teens, and I think that's great. But there's also times you need to pull back and think 
and set that direction for your team. And I think sometimes it's very easy to lose that. Like that's the first thing that tends to go on calendars. And this is one of the things I talk about in the book is that one of the things I've worked with very senior women on is this understanding, right? The only thing that is predictable about your job is that today, and if not today, this week, something incredibly unpredictable is going to land in your inbox. Can we all agree on that? Be right there, right? Right. It might be right here, right now. Don't pull out your phone right now, okay? <laughs> Don't ruin the moment. And so one of the things that I like to recommend doing is putting on what I call a flex block or an agility block. One of my clients calls this her firefighting time. And it's putting on 60 to 90 minutes a day. And I know this might sound radical to some of you, that is just for the ability to pivot. And so what does that mean? If your agility block is at 2 p.m. and someone calls you with a fire at 8.30 in the morning, do you say to them, you know, I would love to help you with this, but my agility block is actually after lunch? <laughs> no but it gives you the slush on your calendar to be able to react and pivot so that in putting out the fire and getting through the rest of your meetings and getting through the rest of your to-do list doesn't push your day until eight or nine o'clock. If you're like me, I know that my day has gone to hell in a handbasket. If my desk looks like a kind bar and string cheese graveyard, lunch important too. But I think sometimes we just power through. Mm -hmm. For some of us, that ability to power through has made us incredibly agile and successful. This isn't about throwing the baby out with the bathwater or is one of my clients likes to say, throwing the wine out with the cork. It is about just, again, these little 1% shifts to make us feel more in control. If there's nothing else, I just want us to feel a choice in our decisions mm -hmm. to not just be impactful leaders, but to enjoy the life that we are leading in the process. Yeah. No, I think going back to longevity, that's so important. We've all achieved a certain level of success. It's time to enjoy it. I don't want people to be burnt out. You know, you are setting the tone for the next generation of women. I want everyone to look up to you and say, I can do that. And it doesn't look so bad when I get there, right? That I'm so tired. And can I just say one more thing about that? We're modeling the norms for our team every single day. So if you're on vacation and you're checking emails and it's really non-essential, you are sending a message to your team that they are not allowed to be off on vacation. One of the women I interview in this book is Neka Chiaizer. She is one of the senior most executives at Cox Communications. And and one of the things that she talks about is when she is off, she is off. And if one of her employees emails while they're on vacation, she actually quote unquote punishes them. <laughs> her version of a swear jar, right? Yeah. It's really important to think about what we're modeling because whether it's our message or our leadership style, people pick up what we put down. Let's talk about time. There's some really interesting data and research in the book about time, the yes. cost of time, the calculus of time, which I find so interesting. So, and I do this all the time. You say, oh, my calendar looks pretty good next month. Sure, I will put something on it. And then next month rolls around, your calendar is just as jammed as yes. it always is. And you look at that thing, you're like, why did I say yes to that? I mean, who hasn't done that? Saying yes to things you look at later and you're like, why did I do that? Should we not do that anymore? How should we think about this? Well, this is one of my favorite phenomena studied in psychology. And it's actually called the yes damn effect. I did not make that up. I wish I had because it is so funny, but this is what it looks like. You say yes to something two weeks out or a month out because your calendar has so much more white space four weeks from now than it does today. And then you get there and you said yes. And now you're like, damn, I'm so busy. Why did I sign up for this? You do one of a few things. One, you show up and you're exhausted at best and resentful at worst. Or two, you ghost and you feel awful about disappointing people. And what we have to remember is that the biggest statistical predictor of how busy you're going to be two weeks or two months from now is how busy you are this week. So the biggest statistical predictor of how busy you're going to be in the future is how busy you are this week. And what we need to start doing is being more protective of our time, not just in setting boundaries, but one of the things, Sam, that you and I talked about previously was this idea of time confetti. Mm -hmm. Time confetti was this idea coined by this woman named Bridget Schulte. She's an author 
author. And then it was studied by scholars at Yale School of Management and Harvard Business School. And this is what it looks like. It's a radical idea. And the idea of confetti is not necessarily that the problem is that you don't have enough leisure time, though I think all of us could probably use more leisure time, right? It's that we insidiously shred the limited amounts of leisure time we have into messy, mindless pieces of what they call time confetti by multitasking. And here's what it looks like. You finished your work, you sit down for an hour of maybe Netflix or reading a book. I've seen women do this when they get on a Peloton, right? But you still bring your phone few minutes into that leisure block that you have an hour for the night and you're in it and maybe like six minutes in your phone buzzes. It's an email. You see it. It doesn't need a response. You put it down. Five minutes later, your phone buzzes again. But Sam, this time someone wants to know if you're going to show up to the 9am meeting. You don't want to leave them hanging, right? right? So you respond, but as long as you're in your inbox, answer the email or you start scrolling Instagram. And this goes on every few minutes. And before you know it, 30 seconds here, 30 seconds there, that can add up to as much as six or seven minutes across the span of that hour. That's not just 10% of the amount of leisure time that you lost in terms of quantity. You've really diminished the quality as well. Yeah, And we know that productivity or multitasking is really a myth that your brain cannot switch on and off that way. So you're just losing time every time you- you're not doing anything. Yeah. Right. And in fact, research from Dr. Willens at Harvard shows that especially when we do things like go on vacation and practice time confetti by just checking our messages or checking our email, we can come back more stressed than when we left it all. And the research also shows that time off improves creativity, productivity. I don't love that word, but I'll use it in this context. Good productivity. So rest is actually a superpower. Yeah. On the concept of boundaries, when it comes to these time confetti blocks, how should we think about boundaries? You know, you think about that time protected at all costs, don't get on your email. What would you say to do? Every single woman in this room is a leader. You know what is truly essential. And so I want to share one tip for practicing your own boundaries. And I want to share one tip for setting the tone positively on your team. When it comes to your own boundaries, I want to say that most of us tend to essentially misthink or miscalculate the cost calculus. And we tend to overestimate how much of a burden it will be to other people if we don't respond right away or if we say no to something. And we tend to underestimate the impact that that will have on ourselves. Often we think disappointing others is going to be worse when half the time we don't disappoint anyone else. We disappoint ourselves in the process. And that just doesn't lead to anything good. When it comes to setting the tone on your team, research shows that no matter how many times you say in an email, no need to look at this until tomorrow morning. I know it's the weekend and I'm just catching up. Feel free to get to this on Monday. No matter how much you say this, senders of after hours emails tend to underestimate the impact that they have on the receivers and receivers tend to overestimate the urgency. So obviously there are many things you all are doing in here that are time sensitive. You should keep the trains running on that, of course. But when it is not truly something that is time sensitive, a very easy way to shift culture on your team is to just throw it in your drafts or hit it in delay send. It is the easiest, easiest win for culture shift. I'm sure that happens all the time for so many people. Don't appreciate what that really is saying to our team and communicating and the impact it has on us. So I think that is really important. Let's go back to the concept of well-being and burnout. You have five self-care myths. 
in the book. So I'd love you to share that with everybody so they can see what it is that we're probably all telling ourselves. We all operate in this shared hustle culture. And again, I just want to reiterate, it's not a JP Morgan thing. It is a living in 2023 thing. And so there are certainly what I would think of as macro environmentals that contribute to our burnout. In my work with clients over the years, I've discovered that there are five self-care myths or five stories that high-performing women tell themselves that keep us from prioritizing our self-care. And I won't walk you through all five. I'll just walk you through a few. The first is what I call the myth of indulgence. And it sounds something like this. Self-care is a luxurious indulgence that I just don't have time for. I will save it for the weekend or my next vacation or a spa day. That is just not true. Rest and recharging is a conduit to our performance. The second is the myth of I should be grateful. It often sounds like the issue is not that I should be stressed. I actually should be grateful because I have this great job and this great team. I work at the best company and I have a wonderful family and I shouldn't feel stressed. I should feel grateful. You are not allowed to weaponize your gratitude. You are not allowed to use your gratitude to bully yourself. We need to remember that you can be stressed and blessed. You can be overwhelmed and very grateful. And then the final one is the story that I hear a lot of women tell themselves, which is what I call the myth that maintenance is self-care. And this one sounds a lot like, you know, I do get self-care time. When I go to Target to pick up paper towels or run to Dwayne Reed to get my prescription at lunch, that's my self-care time. I've got my podcast. No one can bother me. Please listen. That is not self-care, okay? Self-care helps us flourish. That is the most baseline functioning that you need a prescription filled and paper towels and toilet paper inside your house. So if you can do it in a way that feels pleasurable with your favorite podcast or your favorite playlist from Lizzo, I celebrate you. Mm -hmm. But it is the equivalent of saying, getting into your car for those of you who are in the room in New York today on one of those 100 degree New York days in the summer and saying, you know what? I'm going to treat myself to air conditioning today. (laughs) That's not self-care. That is not dying from heat stroke, okay? (laughs) And what it concerns me, Sam, is that especially when I I talk to women in really high levels of leadership is that we have lowered the bar mm. again and again and again from what we're willing to accept mm-hmm. for ourselves, not what we're willing to accept on behalf of others or on behalf of our business. Really? And this is not like a backyard barbecue game of limbo. Mm-hmm. This is our well-being. And I would argue that our well-being is the single only life or death thing that we ever really interact with at work, unless you are a doctor. <laughs> So I want to open it up to questions sure. in a minute from the room and online. But what do you hope people take away from this book? What are the top things you would leave us with? Yeah. A few top line things are that I want you to, number one, get curious. Get curious about what you believe about yourself. Get curious about what you believe about success. Start to interrogate some of those old beliefs and make room for new beliefs. And the second is that this is so doable. Setting boundaries, owning your message, prioritizing your own goals. We're so good at crushing it at everyone else's priorities and feeling like we get crushed in the process. I hope that when you read this book, whether you're looking to crack the code on self-doubt or look into your own goals or think about how you can rethink boundaries or time, that you will find really tactical tools for those little 1% moments and hopefully some really fun and funny stories along the way. There are. There are. Thank you so much, Thank Randy. you for having me. It's a pleasure me. to have you here. Thank you all for being so engaging. Please take the books and share with your colleagues. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Randy. I appreciated all the advice she gave around the balancing act of being a high-performing woman thriving inside male-dominated industries. I also enjoyed hearing different perspectives to approaching work and framing what productivity should really look like. I hope her tips help you as you advance in your career. 
The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. To learn more about Women on the Move and listen to the full library of this podcast, please visit jpmorganchase.com slash W-O-T-M. For JPMorgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.